I grew up with a whole lot of domestic violence in the house. It had me just, you know, I was a really angry young person. And when my dad left at that time, you know, it was common for even if you're 10, 11 years old, like, you know, you're the man of the house now. You're listening to We're Still Standing, presenting the voices and experiences of young people who were caught up in our juvenile justice system. In Season 2, you'll hear lessons learned in lockup that encourage all of us to live with greater authenticity. Subscribe today, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hi everybody, this is Scott Larson. Grateful you're joining us today for another episode of We're Still Standing. And this on season two, we're looking at life lessons that are learned from lockup. And we have a great guest today, Darrell Green. I'm in Worcester, Massachusetts. Darrell is across the country, around Tacoma, Washington. And so we want to welcome him to this episode. And Darrell, just thank you for joining us in this talk today. It's it's an honor and a privilege for me. Uh, Thanks for having me. So I've had the chance to connect with Darrell a bit on reentry, and he was referred to us as one of the guys who's lived on both sides of the wall or both sides of the fence, however you want to say it, came up through the juvenile system, but is doing amazing work with uh, young men and women who are incarcerated in the juvenile system there. So maybe a little bit, Darrell, just how you got connected to the whole justice system and part of what uh, has formed who you are today. Yes. Um, yeah, connected to the justice system. Uh, you mean the very first time? So we're not talking about, we're not talking about the fun part. <laughs> well, how you ended up in the system? Like, you know, it never starts with, with uh, handcuffs, right? There's stuff that leads up to it earlier on, what it was like growing up for you and where you grew up and, and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, that's that's great that you already had the insight to mention that. You know, um, my my childhood. You know, I'm a I'm an early '80s baby, um, and so it's a lot of the stereotypes that there were just going on at that time. You know, um, being in a single parent black household. The war on drugs, you know, uh, was was very effective. We had some casualties of that in in my home. When when my dad was um, around, he played lead guitar in a heavy metal rock band. So he liked all the drugs, and all the drugs liked him, and they didn't get along with the family well. Um, I I grew up with a, a whole lot of domestic violence in the house. It had me just, you know, I was a really angry young person. And when when my dad left at that time, you know, it was common for even if you're 10, 11 years old, like, you know, you're the man of the house now. And my idea of being a man was like basically what I had seen the example said by my dad. I make my own rules. I don't listen to anybody. I don't get along too well with my mother. And it went from my mom, you know, arguing with with my dad and violence and all of those things to where it kind of turned into me arguing with my mom a lot. Never any actual violence. But um, one day I happened to uh, be arguing with my mom and I was 
14 years old, something about some money or something like that. And I got angry and I kicked the door in, in our apartment. And, you know, the funny thing about living in apartments is as much as your mom uh, holds it over your head that this is her house and she pays the bills, she doesn't actually own the apartment. And when you kick somebody's apartment door and put a hole in it, you go to jail for that. And so that was actually the first uh, time I got arrested. It was... uh, a publicly humiliating event being like how the apartments were set up. You know, I, when I got walked out the door neighbors were like yelling stuff to me. I specifically remember the downstairs neighbors like yelling, like, yeah, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. I, I was so mad, but that was how that first ar- arrest came up. Kind of a I, I, normal childhood to me. It, it didn't feel very off from my peers experience necessarily so I thought it was a normal childhood other than the fact I was homeschooled I'm kind of like backtracking now that didn't seem that important but it does give a little bit of perspective to I wasn't socialized very much as as a young person so I was sheltered within the confines of a violent drug abusing household and I didn't even get to escape to school for a little while so so in some ways your first exposure to being that intensely with a number of your peers was was in a detention center sounds like when they first locked you up at 14 did, did they put you in a in a detention center till you went to court and all that is that is was that where your first kind of exposure to that whole system was? Now, um, for perspective, I, I I started going to school around uh, 11 years old. Um, I, I, was, I was 11, almost 12. There was a big fight um, that my mom and dad had where they both ended up getting arrested. And um, they had taken my myself, I'm the oldest of four, um, they had taken myself and my y- younger siblings and actually placed us in a, a in a in a foster home. And when we had got out of that, you know, this was one of those periods where my mom and dad were like trying to work stuff out. And CPS was in our business now, and you know, I think my dad had a couple warrants, and so he convinced my mom. He's like, we have to we have to leave the state. Um, and the state had like forced them to put me into school. I went and I got like suspended the very first day. Like it, <laughs> so I didn't help their case, you know, like with CPS looking at their parenting and everything. Like I, I went to school. I, to this day, I say it wasn't my fault. I did punch a kid, but he like kicked me off the monkey bar. So he had it coming as, as far as I was concerned. But that was like the final straw and my dad was like we have to leave and so he drove us all the way to Baton Rouge Louisiana we were living there and they the domestic violence continues of course so my mom ends up going to a battered women's shelter and my dad just tells us one day we're going on a trip and he packs me and my brothers and sisters back in the car brings us all the way back up 
to somewhere up here like Renton, Washington, leaves us at a house, tells us these people are our cousins, and proceeds to go to jail. And I don't remember how much time passed because I'm a I'm a kid and so like stuff just kinda happens. But like my mom just shows up one day at the door with the police and I don't know how she found us, but she tracked us down takes us back and then moves us to uh over to like the Bremerton area which is a, a small town across the water from Seattle and then uh that's where I started going to school for a couple years and then that's when I got arrested so that's kind of that whole thing yeah so what do you recall was kind of going on in your mind I mean this is a lot of crazy trauma for a 11, 12, 13 year old kid leading up to, you know, the breaking the door at, at 14. But getting back into the mind of that young boy, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? I tell people to this day that I've been old since I was four. And I, and I kind of just feel like that. My, my childhood, I remember having a lot of thoughts about like, you know, I think a lot of boys naturally grow up and they want to be like, a dad and stuff and if you have a great dad then you want to be like a great dad for like that reason and if you have one that wasn't uh doing a great job how mine was you think uh, you know things aren't fair right and so you're like you know when I have a son like I'll never be like this and you have like aspirations kind of like that and I I really just knew I had to bide my time and be quiet because I couldn't do anything about my situation like I remember thinking to myself that this sucks I wouldn't do things this way if I was in charge but I knew that I was not able to like actually act on any of the thoughts I had which I it just made me really withdrawn and I felt that responsibility as being the oldest child to like protect my younger brother and sister so there was kind of this like I always had like a I'm a third parent type thing about myself. That's that's how that's what I remember about being a child. You know, a lot of people say all the time, you know, they would go back to being kids and it was great. And I just I couldn't disagree more. I remember just feeling totally out of control in my life. And I really, to this day, do not like that feeling. Yeah, at 14, feeling like you're the, the man of the house, had to take care of your younger siblings and, and protect them. And, uh, I, I can't imagine. So once you got apprenticed into now this whole other world, the, the juvenile justice system, and at 14... What was that like for you? To you know, to this day, like really one of the worst things, one of the worst feelings I have about anything in that process is getting handcuffed. The, the first time I got handcuffed, and and you know they're like so tight, they're like cutting off the circulation, and then with me being homeschooled, I, I was taught a lot of history, and so I even if I didn't know as much history at the time, something felt. You know, it was like it was in my spirit, like the connection between the cycle of mass incarceration and slavery 
because I just when those shackles were on me, like I I can't stand it to this day. And now that I know more, I'm like, okay, I must have just been feeling something instinctually, you know. But just those cuffs getting put on me, you know, the public humiliation of, of getting arrested. And, you know, in that first one, you know, Scott, I, I, I didn't feel like I was a criminal. You know, I didn't know that what had taken place could even put someone in jail. I, I had no idea. And so the whole thing was a shock. Um, honestly, I just didn't expect it. Wasn't ready for it. So the whole experience of being in juvenile, like I barely remember it. It's like an out of body experience. Like I, I went there. I was there for like a weekend. I remember walking around and, you know, I looked at some people, saw a couple faces I recognized, and then I went home. So what happened after that? I'm assuming there was another point where you got arrested again. I mean, did this start a trajectory in some sense for your life? I mean, it started back at age 11, but now, even though it was only a weekend, how did things shift for you? your involvement things accelerated really quickly at that point um and and when i mean quick i mean like i told you when i first got arrested i didn't even look at myself as being some type of criminal or anything like that to where you know when i got back you know after doing my little in my mind at the time insignificant little weekend you know my mom had decided that was enough and uh, she actually <laughs> took withdrew me from school and, uh, and and put me out the house. You know, at, at first I I got taken in by one of my aunties, but and I tried to do better over there. You know, because my my auntie I felt was the only person uh, in my family that didn't give up on me. And you know, my my mom and I have a great relationship now, but at the time some things that were said, you know, about, and this wasn't just like a one-time thing, but there was a a really big climactic, uh, dramatic moment where this was said again, you know, I'm just going to be like my dad, I'm going to die young, or I'm going to go to prison. And basically they've done all they could do. And this is tough love. And that I received that it, it just that day. It, it was like if, if my mom, my grandmother, if all these people, if they can give up on me, so can I. And it, it triggered the most dangerous human state of mind that I believe that there is, at least that I've experienced. And I just didn't care. People say they don't care all the time, but I literally just, it's like, oh, I, I don't care anymore. And so I didn't necessarily at that time decide like, I'm going to be some type of criminal and have this great, you know, career, <laughs> you know, just breaking the law and all that. But I literally just didn't care about anything. And so that fast trajectory of self-destruction and then just the era of time, just everything that was going on, people that I was around been getting in gangs since they were 11, 12 years old. And so you just really had a moment in society where there was a bunch of angry, hurt, unsupervised children running around outside. And of course they got labeled super predators and gang members and whatever else they fell into. But 
I just became one of those. It makes sense as you say it. And yet, I think for many people in society, there's this idea, well, we'll just teach them a lesson and then, you know, they'll learn, oh, don't touch that stove, that's hot. And it's the opposite, isn't it? We we become what we perceive others envision us to be, especially when they're authority figures, your mother, your aunt, uh, these people who are in the system. Well, if this is who they say that I am, then, hey, I'll, I'll listen to them. You know, and it, it happens even at a level beneath the consciousness. You're, you're great at bringing that out into reality, but so often... You know, it, it makes sense to me. I just see it over and over with kids that um, this is who I am. You know, I've been told you're you're a troublemaker, you're a gangster, you're a problem, you're a menace, and you know, it, it's it's pretty tragic, isn't it? That um, then all of a sudden all the blame shifts to this young person who's living out the very reality that you said the trajectory just increased once you got put into that system. Was there a, like how long did that continue for you in the juvenile system? Did it then move over into the adult system? So in, in Washington state, you're, you're not going to last really long being a, a violent black male. All right. Um, it's just, that's one of the things we have a lot of different laws up here that, could be lenient and things of that nature, but if you're violent and you're black, then you know that's that's the type that they're gonna get off the streets pretty quickly. And so, like, as I was looking for that affirmation, you know, because not everybody that gets into a so-called street life is the same. Everybody's not there for the same reasons. Everybody's not like doesn't have the same personality type. And like I said, I kind of gravitated into that just being an angry hurt person I wasn't really money motivated like that I just the way that uh you know my niche or whatever or how I got the affirmation from the streets that I didn't get from my father or from my mother or family my affirmation was just basically being one of those guys that's just down to do whatever from like 14 to 17 i had i had deteriorated to a point where i wasn't in school at all um i had a few warrants um one of them actually was from the last time i had went to school i did something that i knew i was going to get suspended or expelled for so i waited to the last day did it and so i'm just staying over at one of my friends' house. And, uh, you know, I get a call one morning and they're like, yeah, you know, remember that one thing? We need to do it right now. And I was asleep at that time. I didn't usually ever even wake up before noon. But for some reason, I answered the phone. And uh, I just rolled out of bed grabbed my gun from up under the bed and went and did something that I went to prison for. And that's, I describe that like that just to say that there's not much of a thought process that I had that went into things. I was, by the time from 14 to 17, I was fully just 
engulfed in a lifestyle where my decisions were basically made before I even made them. Ralph mentioned earlier the school-to-prison pipeline, something that he experienced firsthand. It's a system that knows what to do when we do what's predicted of us. It's like someone once said, every system is designed to get the result it gets. It may not be intentional, but it certainly is what happens. In the next episode of We're Still Standing, we'll continue our conversation with Jarrell and see how this played out in his life even further. This podcast was produced by Straight Ahead Ministries on a mission to reach every youth in every facility with the hope of Jesus Christ. This podcast was hosted by Scott Larson, recorded by Scott Larson and Barbara Picard, and produced by James Davis. Please take the time to subscribe, follow, and comment on We're Still Standing. When you do, you help raise awareness for youth in our juvenile justice system. To learn more about this work and join the movement to reach every youth, visit everyyouth.org.